right. Thank you everyone for coming. Sorry about the brief wait outside. The Lefty Theatre is obviously in high demand. Um, I'm going to keep this very short. This is just to say welcome to the first seminar series of Oxford Transitional Justice Research. I'm Nikki, for the, those of you I don't know, I'm Nikki Palmer. I'm the convener of the group. Um, we're very pleased to be co-hosting with the Institute for Ethics and Armed Conflict, Hannah Tompkins, um, book launch. And I'm actually going to leave it up to Phil Clark, who's on our advisory board, to introduce Hannah. But thank you all for coming. And we're very pleased um, specifically to have Hannah because she's been very involved in Oxford Transitional Justice and in fostering the research community that I hope will continue to see grow at Oxford. Great. Thanks, Nikki. Um, thank you all for coming out on Monday in week one as well, too. Um, that's why we had to get Hannah in, because we knew she'd actually get a crowd on a very tough day for an event. Um, as Nikki said, ha Hannah's been involved in this research group uh, really since day one in 2007, so it's really nice, four years later, um, to have Hannah here to speak to you today and also to launch uh, her new book, which she's going to be talking about uh, in the seminar. I see a lot of people here who know Hannah already, so uh, she hardly needs any introduction to you. But for those who don't know Hannah, uh, Hannah did both her Master's and her DPhil in law uh, here at Oxford. Uh, she was a Rhodes Scholar. Before coming uh, to Oxford, she did law and science degrees uh, at the University of Adelaide. She's previously been a lawyer, I think, at almost all of the international <laughs> tribunals. Uh, so she's going to bring a great deal of transitional justice and international criminal law expertise to what she's going to talk about today. She has been at uh, the ad hoc tribunals for both Yugoslavia uh, and Rwanda, as well as the ICC. She's soon to be heading off to the special court for Sierra Leone because she doesn't feel she has the full set yet. Uh, <laughs> so she has very extensive uh, knowledge. She's also published a great deal already. And as I've said, uh, it's great to have uh, her launch her new book today. The book uh, is entitled exactly the same as her presentation, State Control Over Private Military and Security Companies in Armed Conflict. Copies of the book, which is published by Cambridge University Press, are available today. Hannah, I'm sure, is going to say a little bit more about that. Um, but Hannah, it's really great to have you here with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to Phil and Nikki, and thanks to OTJR and DLAC for hosting the event today. And thank you, of course, everyone here for coming. I know Monday of week one is a tough time, so I really do appreciate you coming along today. As Phil mentioned, I am here to launch my book, which has just been published with Cambridge University Press, State Control Over Private Military and Security Companies in Armed Conflict. Now, throughout history, there has been a continuous struggle to contain violence within collective structures. But since the mid-19th century, we have largely assumed that the state is the best institution through which we can control violence and leave violence to the collective will of the people. You see here Max Weber's classic definition of the nation state, a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force. So this has largely been conventional wisdom since the mid-19th century. And we've developed a variety of normative frameworks and accountability structures based on this fundamental norm of public security. But the recent proliferation of private military and security companies, or PMSCs, challenges the basic assumption that the use of physical force is the exclusive domain of states. Today, tens of thousands of private contractors working for PMSCs 
provide military and security services for a variety of clients around the world. Clients including states, private corporations, NGOs, and even the United Nations. And many of these contractors operate in zones of armed conflict, where they provide services that were once the exclusive domain of the armed forces. This extensive outsourcing of military and security activities is particularly evident in Iraq and Afghanistan today, where the US has outsourced so much that it is now essentially dependent on PMSCs to carry out its operations. So you can see here, this graph shows you that the number of contractors working for the Department of Defense in Iraq and Afghanistan has actually been higher than the number of US troops for several years now. So contractors make up about 52% of the Department of Defense workforce in Iraq and Afghanistan today. And the total expenditure on PMSCs by the US Department of Defense in Iraq and Afghanistan, since for those five years, $146 billion. And that's about 18% of the total war spending by the US Department of Defense for operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. So hopefully this gives you some idea of the enormous size of this industry and the huge extent to which the United States in particular has outsourced its military and security activities to private contractors. So let's take a closer look at the private security industry today. What exactly are these companies and what do they do? Well, the modern private security industry essentially emerged in the early 1990s, but it has changed significantly since that time. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Like other corporations, PMSDs are of course registered corporate bodies. They have legal personalities, hierarchical management structures. Many of them have sophisticated websites which advertise the range of services that they offer. Just to give you an idea, Here's a website of a leading American company, CACI, number 14 apparently. This just gives you an idea of the <laughs> professional website we have here. So they're offering various services, defense, intelligence, homeland security. Another leading company, Ronco, again offering a range of services. Here they're advertising their counter IED and IED defeat skills training. And at the bottom there, showing the range of uh, geographical locations in which they operate. So this gives you an idea of, of how, how professional these companies really are. So what do they do? Well, in my book, I group PMSC services into four broad categories. And I'll talk about each category right now. First, I look at offensive combat, which was essentially in the 1990s. Military and security expertise, I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Armed security and military support. So these are the four categories that I identify in the book. So starting with offensive combat. You may recall that the private security industry really burst into the international spotlight in the early 1990s. When the South African company Executive Outcomes and the British company Sandline International provided offensive combat services to the governments of Sierra Leone and Angola in their civil wars. 
The operations of these companies were crucial in quelling the hostilities at the time and, and forcing the rebels to the negotiating table. So at the time, many commentators, or some commentators, praised these companies, saying that they were willing to undertake these messy tasks of intervention that developed states and the United Nations were simply unwilling or unable to tackle. And some commentators even suggested that PMSCs could play a role in peacekeeping operations for the United Nations or directly to assist developing states. But of course, there was also a strong negative reaction around the world to the operations of these companies. Many people were simply opposed to the basic idea of private offensive combat. In 1997, when Sanide International provided uh, signed a contract with the government of Papua New Guinea to provide offensive combat services in order to quell domestic unrest. There were essentially riots on the streets. It was extremely controversial. And there was an uproar in the international media. I certainly remember in the Australian press, these contractors were branded mercenaries at the time. It was very, very controversial. And this really tarnished the reputation of executive outcomes and, and Sandline International at the time. And then in 1998, South Africa passed very strict legislation in a deliberate attempt to squash the South African private security industry. So in the face of all of this controversy, the provision of offensive combat services essentially became bad for business. It was too controversial. So executive outcomes and Sandline both dissolved, although it's widely recognised that they subsequently re-emerged in different forms. And this deterred other companies from offering offensive combat services on the open market. And as a result, what we've seen since then is that the industry shifted. And today, no company will offer on offensive combat services on the open market. Although I'm sure if you knew where to look, you could certainly find those services. And instead, the industry today is made up of the other three categories that I identified here. So military and security expertise, armed security, and military support services. So I'll talk about each of these three categories now. What do I mean by military and security expertise? Well, this is really a broad category that encompasses contracts involving the provision of high-level strategic or technical advice or training or other expertise to military and security forces operating in um, conflict zones. So these contractors are not armed, they're not authorised to use force, but the application of their military or security expertise can still have an immense impact on an ongoing armed conflict. So they can still be extremely important, these services. So examples of services in this category would include advice and training. For example, the Coalition Provisional Authorities hired a number of companies such as Vinyl Corp, trained the Iraqi army following the 2003 invasion. You may recall the operations of MPRI in the former Yugoslavia, which trained Croatian forces. It was quite controversial at the time in the 1990s. Another, another service in this category, the maintenance of complex weapon systems, like missile defense systems, for example. That's frequently outsourced by the US in particular. Mine clearance services. Many companies offer specialist services to clear cluster bombs and other unexploded weapons. Intelligence services, 
the US in particular has extensively outsourced the collection and analysis of intelligence. Both the, the CIA and the Pentagon have outsourced these activities. So this would include things like uh, aerial, uh, aerial reconnaissance and photo interpretation and analysis. And finally, still in this military and security expertise category, many people don't realize that following the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the US extensively outsourced its prisoner interrogation activities. So in a number of prisons around Iraq, there were private, private contractors performing prisoner interrogations for the US government. And following the prisoner abuse scandal at Abu Ghraib prison in 2004, it emerged that 50% of the individuals who were implicated in this prisoner abuse scandal, 50% of those working for the US government, were actually private contractors. They were mainly working for that company, CICI, whose, whose website I showed you earlier. So the official policy of the US government now is not to outsource interrogation. That was, that was too controversial, following the Abu Ghraib scandal. But certainly, a few years ago, they were outsourcing that activity as well. So turning to the third category, armed security. Many of you would have seen Blackwater in the news. This is probably what we think of most instinctively when we think of PMSCs operating in armed conflict. <coughs> armed security contracts involve the physical protection of persons or property in a conflict zone. So I'm focusing on conflict zones. I'm not talking about the guy defending the local bank. We're looking at zones of armed conflict. So there are really four types of contract when we talk about armed security. We talk about static or site security, such as guarding an embassy for a government or guarding a, uh, an oil field for a private corporation, for example, in a conflict zone. Then we have convoy security often highly dangerous, uh, protecting convoys driving through unsecured areas. Security escorts, they're just protecting individuals traveling around unsecured areas. And finally, a personal security detail, which is a specific type of category where we, we provide 24-hour uh, security to a particular high-level individual. For example, uh, Dincourt provided a personal security detail for Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan. So just to give you some idea, around 17%, 17 of the contractors working for the Department of Defense in Iraq are performing armed security services. So it's quite a big part of, of the industry. And these contractors are obviously armed, uh, but they are restricted in the types of weapons they may carry, and they're restricted in the circumstances in which they can use force. So usually they're authorized to use force in defense of the persons or property specified in their contract, or in self-defense, but otherwise they are restricted in, in their use of force. And of course, as I said earlier, the, the industry today is very careful to distance itself from the offensive combat activities of the 1990s. They insist no company today provides offensive combat services, it's just defensive security. But on the ground, this can become quite blurred in practice. Because often these armed security guards, when they are operating in zones of armed conflict, they sometimes protect persons or property that are themselves military targets under the law of IHL, the law of armed conflict. So it's not surprising that they can sometimes be drawn into combat. They can face combat-like situations, even if they're not officially authorised to use offensive force. So this is particularly true in low-intensity conflicts like Iraq, where there's no, there's no clear front line. 
And just to illustrate this point, right, just a couple of uh, websites also just to show you military education and training, MPRI offering their services, to give you an idea. And again, Ronco offering mine clearance services. But just to illustrate the point with armed security, the, this graph is looking at the casualty rate for US troops compared with armed security guards working for the Department of Defense in Afghanistan. So we're just looking at armed security guards, not the other types of contracts that I'm talking about. This shows that the casualty rate for armed security guards is actually 2.75 times higher than the casualty rate for US troops in Afghanistan. This was 2009 to 2010. It's not a perfect because it's just comparing the armed security guards versus all US troops. It's not just looking at the US troops performing exactly the same type of activity, but it still helps to show how dangerous these armed security activities can, can really be. And about 73% of these contracted deaths were providing mobile security. So this is the most dangerous type of security when you're guarding a convoy usually driving through a an armed conflict zone. It can be, can be very dangerous. So finally, the fourth category of contract, military support services. When we're thinking about the modern private security industry, it's important to recognise that the overwhelming majority of these companies are performing support services. So we're talking about things like cooking the food, doing the laundry, providing transport, the assembly and disassembly of military bases and camps, the repatriation of bodies, everything that needs to happen to support military forces working in these theatres of conflict. So they are working for the Department of Defence usually, but they're not performing strictly military or security type activities. It's more providing support services. So over 70%, 70% of PMSC personnel working for the DOD today are just providing support services. It's important to, to recognise this when we're thinking about the industry today. And this just indicates that breakdown, as I mentioned. So the majority providing military support, significant proportion providing security, a small proportion providing training and advice. Although remember that a number of companies also provide this type of advice uh, sort of in peacetime, and then other services. So I hope this gives you now a snapshot of the industry today. And I hope you have an understanding of how the industry has evolved over the past 25, 30 years. So let's look at why the US in particular, why it outsources so much. What does it see as the benefits of outsourcing? Well, the Department of Defense identified the number of operational benefits that it considers uh, PMSCs offered to the government. Perhaps the most obvious is that PMSCs, the extensive outsourcing of of military and security activities to private contractors, these contractors act as a force multiplier. So by outsourcing a lot of these activities, particularly the more peripheral activities and the support activities, this frees up US troops to focus on core military activities, particularly combat. So this is very important at the moment when the US military is severely overstretched. It's quite obvious. The Department of Defense also emphasizes that the extensive outsourcing can also provide them with greater flexibility because by hiring contractors, they can simply be hired, deployed, and then fired when a need arises. 
So this provides federal agencies with, with more flexibility rather than keeping a number of employees on the books long term. And this can also save the government money because contractors are simply hired and, and deployed and then fired when a particular need arises. They don't need to provide these long-term salaries, support for the families, healthcare, everything else that goes into supporting a military force. So the Department of Defence considers that, that PMSCs can also save the government money. And finally, the Department of Defence notes that in some cases, the use of contractors can be beneficial because they may possess unique skills that are not maintained long-term in the military. And in addition to these operational benefits that the Department of Defence identifies, some commentators also point to certain political reasons why the government may choose to outsource. In particular, many commentators note that the extensive outsourcing of these activities can help to hide the cost of war from the public. So to put it bluntly, it's less damaging to the government when it's private contractors who are coming home in body bags rather than US troops. So as you saw before, there are quite often quite high casualty statistics for these contractors, but these casualty rates are not in included in the, the military personnel casualty statistics that we usually see in the media. So this can help, a number of commentators point out that this can help the government to sustain an unpopular war, certainly important at the moment. So this brings me directly to some of the concerns that surround the modern private security industry. We've talked about the benefits, what are the concerns? Well, in my book, I trace the historical evolution of private fighters. And I identify three basic objections that have consistently arisen throughout history. And this builds on the work of other commentators in this area, such as, such as Sarah Percy. Now, when we're thinking about these three objections, I'll go through them in just a moment, it's important to realise that these objections do apply to, to the industry today, but they're really relevant to the sharper end of the industry. So these objections aren't so relevant to the people who are just cooking the food, doing the laundry, providing transport services. We're really talking about the sharper end of the industry here. So looking at the three objections that have consistently arisen throughout history, the first objection that we do see consistently perhaps the most obvious, is simply that private fighters are not motivated by what we see as an appropriate or a legitimate cause. So they're motivated by money. And generally what we see is that the, the killing of another individual, the taking of life in warfare, is only seen as morally justified, if, if at all, by some attachment to a bigger cause, a cause greater than oneself. So the fact that these fighters fight for money is seen as morally problematic. We see this consistently throughout history, compared with, for example, soldiers who might be seen as motivated by, by patriotism or at least attached to some bigger cause. So we see this basic objection there. And we, we consistently see that in the, the literature on the private security industry today, perhaps not surprising. Now, the second objection we often see is that these private fighters may undermine democracy because they fight outside the citizen-state military relationship, the relationship that's, that's seen as being central to our democratic norms. So this objection can be traced back at least as far as Machiavelli. The basic idea is that the citizen army may constrain the state from going to war. And conversely, 
the extensive use of foreign mercenaries may impede the development of a, of a healthy relationship between citizen and state. The foreign fighters or the mercenaries may not fight with regard to the public good. So the basic idea is that the armed forces should be recruited from the people. They should be at one with the people. And the basic idea is that the extensive outsourcing of military activities undermines this, this basic norm. And the third objection we often see, and we see this a lot in the literature today on the private security industry, is that these private fighters are not subject to adequate control and accountability mechanisms. So that's what I focus on in the book. The first two objections, the, the objection about the, the motivation of the fighter, that they're not motivated by an appropriate or legitimate cause, and that they fight outside the citizen-state military relationship, those two objections really focus on the basic status of these individuals. Whereas this third objection about control over the, their activities and accountability for their conduct, this doesn't focus on their basic status, this focuses on their activities. So this third objection can potentially be alleviated by greater regulation. Whereas the first two objections cannot really be alleviated by regulation. They're more questions that governments need to consider in the first place when they're assessing whether and to what extent they want to outsource in the first place their military and security activities. So looking at this issue of control and accountability, when a state outsources its military activities, generally speaking, they have less control over those activities than they would if they, if they used their armed forces, for example. And this has led to, to problems in, in practice. For example, I mentioned that the 50% of the interrogators at Abu Ghraib who were implicated in the prisoner abuse scandal, 50% were private contractors. Well, it subsequently emerged that of those private contractors, 35% had had no formal interrogation training, nothing at all, and yet they were providing a service for the US government. So this is one example where outsourcing has led to inadequate control over what they're actually doing, inadequate training standards. In other cases, we see inadequate screening standards, inadequate supervision in the field, inadequate reporting requirements. So these are real problems that we see in the industry today. And that's what I focus on in the book. So in particular, I asked what are the obligations on states under international law to control PMSCs and to ensure that they are held accountable if they engage in misconduct. And when looking at this question, I focus on three key states. So I look at the hiring state. So the US, for example, is, is the biggest, by far the biggest user of these companies. But a number of other states do also outsource their military and security activities. The UK certainly does. Even Australia, more and more, is doing it. And Canada, a number of other states. So the hiring state, what, what are their obligations? The host state, so the state in which the company is operating, such as Iraq or Afghanistan, what obligations do they have to control the companies to ensure that they're held accountable if they do engage in misconduct? And finally, the home state. So the state in which the company is based or incorporated. So many companies are based or incorporated in the US, many are also based here in the UK, and many have subsidiaries in other states, so Australia for example, or the Middle East. So what are the obligations of the home state under international law? And bearing in mind these three states, I look at two basic questions. 
First, I asked what are states' positive obligations to prevent or punish PMSC misconduct? And second, if a PMSC does engage in misconduct, so if they if they a contractor shoots a civilian, for example, and they weren't acting in self-defence, in what circumstances could this actually lead to state responsibility under international law? So the first question concerns the primary rules of international law. The second question concerns the secondary rules of international law, which govern the attribution of conduct to a state. So starting with the first question, what are states' positive obligations to prevent or punish PMSC misconduct? Well, I look at a number of international legal frameworks in the book, but the two most important are, without doubt, international humanitarian law, or IHL. This is the law of armed conflict. It's the, the lex specialis, or the, the specific framework that's tailored to situations of armed conflict. And the other framework, the other most important framework, is human rights law. This is a general framework. It was developed primarily to apply in peacetime, to regulate the relationship between governments and citizens, but it does continue to apply in situations of armed conflict. I also look at a few other frameworks, including some, uh, some older frameworks, such as the law of neutrality, the norm of non-intervention, particularly in relation to the, the home state. Uh, and they are relevant, but, but the two most relevant are undoubtedly international humanitarian law and human rights law. So starting with IHL, there are a number of obligations that are important here. The obligation to ensure respect for IHL. This is Common Article 1 of the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocol 1. I'll talk about this a bit more in a moment. Other relevant obligations under IHL would be obligation to protect civilians, obligation to suppress or repress violations of IHL, the obligations of occupying powers, particularly under Article 43 of the Hague Regulations. For example, the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq following the 2003 invasion, what were their obligations there? And under human rights law, there is a basic, very well-established obligation to protect or ensure human rights. So I'll talk about what that means a bit more in a moment. So I just wanted to expand a little bit on the obligation to ensure respect for IHL. What does this mean in practice? Like I said, Common Article 1 of the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocol 1. And this is a very broad obligation. It has universal application, which is very important when we compare it with human rights law, for example, which, which is limited to a state's jurisdiction. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's a broad obligation. I argue that it, in practice, it requires states to take positive measures to prevent or PMSCs from violating IHL and to punish those violations when they do occur. So this interpretation is supported by the International Committee of the Red Cross, also the Montreux document. Some of you may be aware that a number of states got together in 2008. They drew up a document identifying the specific obligations on states in relation to PMSCs. And they also adopted a similar interpretation of this obligation. And that's a particularly, the Montreux document is particularly important because the 17 states that drew up this document include most of the major players in the modern private security industry. So this includes the US, the UK, Australia, South Africa, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, Iraq, a number of important countries, China, France. So this is why it was seen as significant. And a number of countries have since endorsed that document as well. So the obligation to ensure respect for IHL. 
But just, just finally, on, in relation to that obligation, it's important to recognise that no court to date has recognised that a state can be held responsible simply for failing to prevent or punish a violation by a private actor. The International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua case found that the US was responsible for violating Common Article 1 because it had encouraged the rebels to violate IHL. So they didn't find on the facts, they didn't need to find on the facts, they didn't need to question whether a state could be held responsible simply for failing to take action. But there's certainly, uh, that interpretation was certainly open uh, based on the wording of the court and certainly on principle, it seems like a strong argument. So turning to human rights law, <clears throat> when we think of what obligations human rights law imposes on states in relation to PMSCs, we need to first consider two threshold questions. So the first question we need to consider is the extraterritorial applicability of human rights law. Because human rights law binds states within their jurisdiction. And the question of jurisdiction, the notion of jurisdiction, is interpreted primarily in a territorial sense. So what that means is that all states are bound by human rights law in their own territory, but they're only bound by human rights law overseas in certain specific circumstances. This is very important if we're thinking, for example, about the US hiring a PMSC to operate in Iraq, is the US bound by human rights law in relation to the activities of that company? So just briefly, there are two situations in which a state will be bound by human rights law overseas. So the first is where a state exercises effective control over territory overseas. For example, if a state's an occupying power overseas, or even if they're not an occupying power, but they nonetheless exercise control over a particular territory, they will be required to they will be bound by human rights law within that territory. And the second scenario is where a state exercises effective control over an individual overseas. For example, if a state agent takes an individual into custody, they arrest an individual, the individual is, is held in a military prison in Iraq, the state will be bound by human rights law in relation to that individual. So they're the two scenarios where human rights law will bind states overseas. And if you're interested in this question of extraterritorial jurisdiction, you should look at the recent decisions of the European Court of Human Rights in Alskani and Algeta in July of this year. Very interesting. So the second threshold question in relation to human rights law is what is the relationship between human rights law and international humanitarian law? Because like I said, international humanitarian law is the specific framework for situations of armed conflict, whereas human rights law is a general framework. So it's important to think about how these two frameworks interact with each other. And having done this, we can identify a number of obligations in human rights law that, that come out of the, the case law that are relevant to PMSCs. For example, there's an obligation to plan and control security operations in order to minimise the risk to life, an obligation to protect individuals in state custody, an obligation to take specific preventive measures to target recurring violations and to target individuals or, or companies that are known to be dangerous. An obligation to protect individuals whose lives are at risk, individuals or groups. And there are special obligations to protect women and children as well under human rights law. So finally, I examined the question of state responsibility for PMSC misconduct. So if a private contractor does engage in misconduct, for example, if they, they shoot a civilian, they weren't acting in self-defence, 
In what circumstances could this give rise to the responsibility of a state under international law? Well, there are two basic pathways to state responsibility here. The first pathway is where the contractor was actually acting as an agent of the hiring state. In that case, the misconduct of the contractor is directly attributed to the hiring state. So if we think of it, you may recall in 2007, there were Blackwater contractors who were implicated in shooting a number of civilians, shooting and killing a number of civilians in Baghdad in 2007. They were working for the US Department of State. So we could ask, were those contractors acting as state agents? Because if they were, the United States would be responsible for that misconduct under international law. And then the second pathway is where the state actually had a positive obligation to prevent or punish the contractor's misconduct. So this isn't just relevant to the hiring state, it's also relevant to the, the home state and the host state. This could potentially be relevant to all three. So if they had a positive obligation to prevent or punish that misconduct, they may be responsible if they fail to fulfill that, that obligation. So in conclusion, I argue that international law does impose clear obligations on states, requiring them to control PMSCs in the field and to ensure that they are held accountable if they engage in misconduct. And states cannot simply evade international responsibility by outsourcing their military and security activities. They can still be held responsible under international law in these circumstances. And in order to fulfill their international obligations, oh sorry, this provides an incentive for states, first of all, to consider carefully the extent to which they outsource their activities. And second, if they are going to outsource, to improve domestic regulation of PMSCs. If they are going to outsource, to make sure that they strictly control what the companies are doing. And I identify a number of concrete measures that states should take in order to fulfill their obligations. So for the hiring state, as I said, they need to screen and train contractors. Ensure that they're supervised in the field and that there are strict reporting requirements in place. And to ensure that there are contractual and, where appropriate, criminal penalties if the PMSCs do engage in misconduct. <coughs> in relation to the home state and the host state, I recommend a licensing regime for PMSCs. So there is currently, if we think of the home states and the state in which the company is operating, the United States and South Africa, for example, currently have licensing regimes which, which are based on a similar sort of structure as, as regimes for the export of, of military material and arms. So what that means is that PMSCs that are based in the US need a license from the government in order to operate. And then when the PMSC wants to conclude a contract with a foreign client to provide military or security services, the government then has to authorise that contract. And they can, they can choose uh, not to authorise that and even to cut off the company's licence if necessary. So both the US and South Africa have regimes of this nature in place. And if we're talking about the host state, both Iraq and Afghanistan are trying to implement a licensing scheme for companies that are operating on their territory. But of course, in practice, this can be very difficult if we're talking about states that are in a situation of armed conflict or in a post-conflict situation. It can be very difficult in practice for them to exert authority over these foreign companies that are operating on their territory. But nonetheless, we see these efforts from both Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is a positive development as well. 
so on that note, i'd like to thank you all for listening and i welcome welcome your questions.